Aloha and welcome to the one within all, to an extraordinarily enlightening episode of Innerverse. Wondrous friends, I'm sure many of you have noticed that over the last few years we have seen a massive migration of mindsets moving from the mainstream worldview of concrete scientific materialism towards a fluffy, airy-fairy, and very often pseudoscientific New Age perspective. A special type of religion, where the only common ground between adherents tends to be the idea that a person should get to make up for themselves what's true based on how it makes them feel. But if you've been listening to me for the last year, then you know I've had a lot to say about philosophical concepts like natural or universal law, and that spiritual truths can be discovered and integrated to help us become truly individual beings, meaning that we express our unique higher selves and are therefore internally indivisible. But what does it mean to use phrases like cosmic consciousness, higher awareness, or divine illumination? The new CAGE rulebook says that we should toss words around however we want, and the more spiritual-sounding lingo we can use, the more identity points we can get to feed our egos. But what does it really mean to be awakened and enlightened? These are ideas that need to be seen clearly if we want to move ourselves in the direction of expressing them in consciousness. My guest today is Matt Presti, an extremely eclectic artist who has been working tirelessly to demystify these concepts, because humanity is more than ready to advance to the next level of wisdom, from understanding based on external world experiences and information, to understanding based on communion with the source of all truth, knowledge, and power. Eclectic barely describes Matt's range of abilities as an autodidactic musician, philosopher, poet, cosmologist, practitioner of universal law, natural science, and living philosophy, an audio and video producer, and host of various YouTube series, such as Knowing the Creator 101, and the current president of the University of Science and Philosophy, formerly known as the Walter Russell Foundation. Matt is a living testament to the potential we all have to a creatively express truth through any and all mediums as a creative dynamo. And in the month that I've had to explore Matt's creations and the work of Walter Russell, I have felt massively, indescribably inspired. And I hope to bring that to you listeners today. The university I just mentioned is actively working to empirically validate the ideas expressed by the great artist and natural scientist of the early 20th century, Walter Russell, a name that many have heard but far too few are up to speed on his divinely inspired philosophy based around unlocking the secrets of light itself, which is the keystone to all other natural sciences and art forms. Of course, no one being gets everything right in mediating the transmission from source consciousness, but if you dive into the works of Walter Russell or look into the work Matt has compiled in propelling the Russell's ideas into the future, you'll likely find that the worldview of balance and harmonic oscillation between man and creator that Russell Physics presents will resonate with many of your own illuminated thoughts that perhaps you just never have put down into words. With the realization of cosmic consciousness for all beings as a mission objective, I think you and I have got our work cut out for us, Matt, because to bring it to the world, we must first awaken it within ourselves. You can find Matt's creations on YouTube and also on his website, mattpresti.com, and you'll find links to these in the episode notes for the podcast. So, dear listeners, please join me in projecting your own inner light of balanced love to the genius who we've borrowed for this interview and help me in welcoming Matt Presti to Interverse. It's great to have you here, man. Infinite thanks for your time today and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chance. I don't know that I've ever heard an introduction quite like that, but I appreciate it. 
It's good to join you today and honor and a pleasure. Thanks. I think to start off, I'd like to ask you, are you a scientist who makes art or are you an artist who does science? Well, that's a good question. I'm a little bit of both. I appreciate natural science to a great extent because it, well, it's based on nature. I'll just say that, that it's, uh, that it's been presented to us over and over through the great teachings of hermeticism and, and the different Eastern philosophies that attempt to define what we live in, what nature is. The idealist movement of the uh, late you know, 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries that uh, brought us so many wonderful exposés on inner contemplations of nature and the universe and then also, you know, the art and uh, whatnot is, is part of self-expression. So it's not enough to be just a thinker who ponders creation and observes it and tries to reduce it empirically or otherwise into understandable means and methods of, of how nature does what it does. But it's also part of, at least for me, the duty to express what those inner rhythms are for myself to enjoy them. You know, they are the fruits of your labor. Uh, the fruits of your, your knowing, I should say, put into action are the things we call works of art. And every human on the planet has some ability that they're better at than others. But of course, not being a contest, the real contest is whether you can build bodies for your own imaginings. And to the extent that you put in inspiration into it is to the extent that others can you know, feel that inspiration and it uplifts them. And I think that's uh, an important element that's missing from education and from media these days is inspiration. Um, it's mostly centered around parroting, which is remembering and repeating. And, and those who do so the best get the highest grade. Um, so there are school models out there like the Steiner schools and, uh, other schools, and in fact, homeschooling, which has uh, really taken off quite to my own enjoyment to see that. Things that focus on the inner soul, the inner thinking, or thinking inwardly toward the soul, need much more focus and appreciation in these days. And that's ultimately what it means to be balanced, is to have the ability to look outward toward material manifestation and also balancing that with the ability to look inward toward the soul. Yeah, the two-directional nature of thinking is a pretty misunderstood concept. I don't think I really ever considered the difference between thinking inwardly towards the soul and outwardly towards the world until encountering Walter Russell. And I'm about two-thirds of the way through reading The Secret of Light. I started it about a month ago, and I might have finished it by now, but I've been going over the same passages over and over again. Not because I don't understand or they're impenetrable, because they're beautifully simple, but because I feel like they're so worthwhile to integrate into my being that I really want to better my ability to understand and express these ideas. So I've read a few passages several times, probably, and I've listened to it in uh, audio form as well. So let's return to talking about your own history and creations a little later and jump into some clarification about the Russell's philosophy because I'm sure we could go about that for a long time. Let's talk about the notion of that balanced rhythmic interchange that you're describing. 
And how does that act as a conduit to the healing of the world and solving the situation that humanity is in with itself and the planet? Well, one thing that drew me, and I, I started with the book, The Secret of Light myself, but was the undeniable mirroring of inspiration in my soul that he was expressing from his. Uh, that book changed my life. No other book had that effect on me, and I had read hundreds prior to that one. Books on spirituality, books on philosophy, books on science, books on religion, comparative religious studies. I had gone through the gamut, and you know nothing gave me that kind of inspiration, like reading the words of Walter Russell. That's truly what a mystic, I think the definition of a mystic is one who, I think it was Michael Tessarian said, also a true magician is able to do four things simultaneously, affect you physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually all at the same time. And so upon reading that book, I was absolutely floored. And I had to go back and revisit passages because they were so inspiring that I lost focus on what I was reading for a moment and had to go back and then read them again and, and re-inspire myself all over again. But I think what it does for, for us is, you know, we are Westerners, Western European people here on this planet, at least in this, uh, at least in this incarnation in this place. But we, we've so often lean toward the Eastern mysticism and philosophies, which, you know, aren't necessarily our own culture, you could say. So when an artist of, of this caliper comes along and he's speaking to us in words we can totally understand because we are of that descent. So it's interesting how much it echoes more than, say, the words of Paramahansa Yogananda. And again, people can only communicate in language that they are brought up with and in with a, a sway on, you know, the land that they come from. It's interesting that land does influence the dialect of language. But nonetheless, you know, these, uh, these kinds of words come along and it leaves one in a position to ask, at least for me, why didn't I hear of this before or where, where was this all my life? But it, you have to get to the point where you're ready for it. I guess they say when the student's ready, the, the master appears. But And what's so pleasing about these teachings is that it doesn't require faith in something outside of yourself. The whole sense of faith is the faith of your soul, the faith of your own connection to the divinity within you. And two degrees we see geniuses have awakened to the light of divinity within them, and they're able to bring knowledge from the zero out into the motion world and demonstrate to the rest of us what they know. And it's knowledge without learning. They don't need to go to school to learn this, to express it. And that's what Tesla did when he had the flashes of illumination of this AC motor or the AC generator as well, which he built. You know, it was all from that stillness within and to the degree that one is able to bring those inspirations out into the world in what we call creations are to the degree that we recognize that as genius and genius isn't really concerned with material gain. It's concerned with expression again, self-expression, which makes these teachings folks like this cult proof. Any teaching that points outside of yourself is not cult proof. Corporations are actually cults. In some degrees, you can look at the ingredients of any product 
And those ingredients are little beliefs that one must have to fulfill the label on the box. So people who live by labels and think that's who they are are missing a whole lot of uh, possible growth in that sense that it's a limited system. And that's what I would say a cult is, is a system of belief or faith or understanding based on the ingredients which make that up. In other words, even materialist science is to a degree cultish because it doesn't allow for certain kinds of of study in other fields, for instance, intelligent design and so forth. There's a lot of problems with cult thinking, but one is that you're not really allowed to have ideas outside of the box. It's about getting a copy and paste download of beliefs from a group or ideology and using that as your rule book. Whereas the inner knowing that you're describing that's coming from your personal perspective, your unique point on the infinite fractal of all life, that allows you to look at the world and be inspired by what you see as the potential to exist. And for me, love is is totally definable as the recognition and enhancement of the higher potentiality and the full expression of the object of one's love. So the person who is doing what they love, what that means is they're creating a higher potential reality for themselves. They're putting it into a form or a body, as you said before. And because your unique perspective gives you the ability to see that which no one else has seen, that means you can have an idea that no one else has had. So whatever it is that you create and put into form in a balanced way, without this notion of needing material gain from it, that's when you'll see inventions that change the world and free other people. Like if we had actually expanded on Tesla's technology, what a world we would have now as opposed to the world that we got. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, it's part and parcel to having to go through this experience. We're all learning together what it means to be human and to fully express ourselves. I think the real, the variable difference, I should say the the only difference between mediocrity and genius is that one on on the end of genius your growth as a as a creative being is determined by your recognition of the light of mind within you and that's really all the the whole thing comes down to is you know those who recognize the divine light to a greater degree are what we call geniuses or greater inventors or you know they're always working always inspired by their own connection to the soul within themselves and their recognition of that divinity of that divine light. That's the real variable between what we call mediocrity and what we call average versus above average, which is what really all people, if if they were to be honest with themselves, aren't content with just being average. I mean, some, everybody I know at least wants to try to uh, be creative or at least to express the qualities that they possess in terms of art or the different human expressions that, you know, even motherhood is a form of expression and fatherhood. So those who do it better do it lovingly. So whereas it, you know, without love and the work you do, it's a lot harder to do. So it just, uh, love to me is knowledge is light is God is creator. These words are all synonymous and it really comes down to, those who recognize the divine light within are much more capable of being creative and expressing themselves in more and more unique, authentic and original ways. And we're seeing a, a major lack of that in the schools these days. There's, there's no, nothing being taught 
about the recognition of the light within. There's not even in the religions, you know, so the religions themselves are, are limited by their inability to recognize, you know, that the divine light is all that any, that centers any body on this planet. And again, those, those who can recognize it, and that's really what it comes down to. That's, that's man's greatest trial is learning to recognize that light within. It does not require that you join anything to do it. It simply requires that you focus your thinking inward toward your soul as opposed to outward toward your senses. And it's so unknown today that we have two ways of thinking, two directions of thinking, one could say. And that's where uh, I like to use the term horizontal awareness versus vertical awareness. Uh, horizontal awareness is thinking outward, where vertical awareness is knowing the inward. In other words, the knowledge to express that which has never before been you know, manifested on this stage we call life. The way a great artist can inspire someone relates to the fourfold influence that you were speaking of before, of affecting the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual bodies, which happens because that artist is transmitting a thought that was generated through integrating the horizontal thinking of the senses and the vertical knowing of the true higher self. And as you were saying, this type of notion is so lost on our culture that we may even have alienated listeners just by using concepts like God or the Creator. And taking back these ideas is difficult because we've been so culturally entrained in a purely materialist worldview and perspective that uh, has been keeping us searching the physical world out there for answers to things that can only be known from an inner reflection. Because of this inverted way of prioritizing the senses, we get trained to only notice things that move or make a lot of sound. But if you look at the source of motion, a good Walter Russell metaphor is the seesaw or teeter-totter where... There's a fulcrum point of balance in the middle, but the motion is only perceptible from the two poles going up and down. We don't see that the fulcrum point in it exists in all things because it's always completely still. I think searching for the still center point is a good place to begin if you've been in an atheistic or materialistic perspective for a long time and you're skeptical of these notions of divine, illum divine illumination, but also open-minded to try to figure it out for yourself. And if you can't perceive in your own life the existence of a creator, that's not because the divine intelligence isn't at work through nature and the outer world. It's just that you can only perceive it from a centered and balanced practice of thought. And so for me, this internal connection became more and more apparent the more I practiced the superpower of meditation, which is something you talked about in your Knowing the Creator series as being a conduit or avenue for channeling or manifesting this divine illumination for oneself. And with reading Walter Russell, for example, a lot of the phrases and statements in his work that were directly the result of divine illumination, that was called the divine Iliad. And some of that stuff, I would be like, okay, yeah, I've had that thought before. I've had this awareness before. But I think it came to me in the middle of meditation. When you have those aha moments in the middle of meditation, and something becomes crystal clear and a perfectly formed thought comes into your mind and it's reverberating truth and you know it's absolute. But then the next moment after that fleeting thought, you don't even have it anymore. Not even a sentence. It's just gone. But you've touched the knowing. You've tapped into it. And what these real divine illuminates are doing, like the Walter Russells and the Teslas, they're taking that 
and they're actually putting it into a body and creating it. And they keep focused on that light within until they've produced it into physicality. I think that's what art really is. And that's what genius really is. Absolutely. That's, that's the whole measurement system right there. Let thine eye be single. And basically the eye of the heart is the pineal. It's the central most organ of the entire body centering the two hemispheres of the brain. And the, the cross is a great symbol to use for this to further understand, but the brain is literally the horizontal. I mean, it's the base, it's the animal. And the furthest man can go is with the horizontal awareness is his senses. All the illuminates and the mystics from time immemorial have always said that, you know, motion is an illusion. What does that mean? Well, it means that your senses perceiving the electric vibrations that are that all stem from the vertical into the horizontal cannot be known by the horizontal. It must be known by the vertical from which they extend. So one can, one can look at a piano and have absolutely no idea what's on the inside of it. And they'll think that the sound comes from the key that you push, either the white key or the black key. Having never looked into a piano before, one would imply with the senses that the only thing making the noise is this key when in actuality, when one opens up the piano, they see these tightly wound strings that are placed under tension. And they see that when these strings are still, they emit no vibration whatsoever until the mind desire strikes that key, which vibrates the chord from stillness into vibration, which produces the key of middle C. So what we're seeing with our senses is limited, limited by what we can perceive into motion itself. And that's why you look at our current materialistic science. Atheism is, is a philosophy. I know there's going to be a lot of atheists who probably disagree with that, but it's provable. It's a way of looking at the world, but I, I, I basically liken it to being stuck in the horizontal. Everything has to be explained by the senses because without the senses, you know, nothing makes sense. <laughs> But what can be known versus what can be sensed, there's a very large dichotomy there. Again, one can know love, but one cannot prove it empirically in a laboratory nor measure it in scope, density, or otherwise. It's, it's a mental quality. And the great mental qualities, knowledge, beauty, rhythm, harmony, intuition, instinct, are all vertical qualities, qualities of the mind as opposed to the brain. And so we, uh, we think outwardly, our mind thinks through our brain. Mind is like a universal construct, if you will, or universal conceptualization. We can conceive anything in mind. The hard part is holding that thought or holding that inspiration and literally building a body for it. That's, again, as you said, what the great geniuses and mystics are able to do is either write down or at least build in some part a demonstrated body, which then re-inspires all those men who perceive it with their senses. That's what the great symphonic writers, the great artists are able to do. They can transfer that inspiration, that idea from within. And uh, idea, I created an acronym for that, internally derived extended action. So what is internally derived in the mind is extended into action, what we call material bodies. And to the degree that we put in our inspiration into that material body is to the degree that it will affect others who, who come to witness it with their senses, which brings them into the vertical world. That's why certain people who are exposed to 
different works of art by these spiritual masters break into tears. They're moved to tears by these incredible symphonies or these incredible poet poetries or writings of, of such divine nature that it puts you in touch so hard with the vertical that, you know, it's overwhelming to the emotions. And that's what really the challenge for any of us is. And again, that's a, another cult proof way of looking at things is that you're learning to express yourself to the degree of the realization of your own divinity within. Again, that's, that's what it comes down to. How much can a man listen to learn to listen with inner ears and learn to see with inner, the inner eye, let thine eye be single to where he can focus on his soul truly to be able to express it. Something we don't have taught in schools. Um, as far as I know, the only official school that does teach a course in genius to this level is our university that I'm currently president of the university of science and philosophy, which is a great honor to serve in that capacity. Um, again, it, it's teaching man to look inward and develop the, the relationship to his internal self, his creator, if you will. And a way to do that is through the opening of the heart. As you were saying, the pineal gland, which is the seat of the soul and the imagination in mystic thought, being the eye of the heart, it's what you activate through meditation and where you can activate it anyway, through a practice and becoming one pointed focusing and uh, things like prayer, you know, that's the thing about a point too. It can have infinite size or smallness. It's not measurable in physicality, just the same way that love isn't measurable in physicality. But the expression of that one pointedness, the expression of what you care about and what you love, while it's not measurable by physical means per se, someone that does have that love and that interconnection to their creator and they're expressing it in form and action and how they're treating other people and how they behave in the world, that actually does have an impact, kind of like a weight, you could say, or a size. You could look at one person compared to another and clearly say, this one person does love more, or at least they express love more. And that's also equal to the degree that the individual will receive and feel love, because that's one of the great secrets. It's the notion that the creator won't work for you, but it will work with you, as I believe Russell also said, which is another way of saying you have to give love to receive love. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's really what it comes down to is man's, again, his authentic, original experience is, you know, best shared if he's true to what he sees within, as opposed to what he's trying to prove without. And, you know, again, you have your materialist philosophers, which are looking for a particle of matter to explain motion. Whereas you have 6,000 years of mind scientists who have basically shared with man that, you know, this is a mind wave universe. And, and what you think is, you know, to the degree of what you think is to the degree that you're capable of expressing what you think. And so what you know, again, when you think of mind, think of it as more or less the infinite itself. And your point of light of your mind is just a drop in the ocean of the all mind. And you think through your electric brain, dividing your idea into motions which electrically circulate between the hemispheres of your body. So when you're painting, one hand holds the palette of the paint, the other hand holds the brush. When you're playing a guitar, one hand must hold the notes while the other strums the, the, the strings. 
and then piano, two hands, one for bass, one for treble. So what you're seeing in your mind in terms of what we call a song or an original song is, is a mental process. And you're actually dividing that desire to express that mental process or that mind idea into a divided universe, which then expresses through pulsations and vibrations a simulation of what it is your mind knows. So again, when I've written some 250 plus songs, many of these songs came out of very inspired dreams, very inspired states of deep consciousness. Um, I will suddenly hear rhythms. And many times I've, I've had most of these songs have been written in my mind already. And the, the, the simple task was to take them apart and track them out one track at a time. And I'm sure that's, you know, as I've read and studied in, in the processes of illumination, uh, it was the same with Tesla, the same with Michelangelo. He saw what was in the rock. His job was simply to carve out the stone to reveal that which he saw within it. Uh, Tesla saw the AC generator in his mind, drew the figure in the dirt with a stick. And then a couple years later, built it and it stood before him, a working model complete as his mind saw it. And that's uh, something, that, again, they don't teach in school. There's, there's no uh, courses that you can take, minus, like I said, this, this wonderful university that I'm affiliated with. And uh, perhaps there are, but I don't know of any. But nonetheless, I think a course in genius is a course in, in expressing the true authentic self. And there's a lot of power in that. And it's, it's an act of the greatest love to oneself to do that. It's an honest approach to living life. Some may disagree with me, but I'm going to just say it. It doesn't involve the need for substances. And substances in that sense are a crutch. They kind of, you know, being a vibration themselves that you take on and, and share. And it shares in the experience of being human as much as you share the experience of the substance. But it doesn't quite get you to the stillness. It's, it's, it's a good try, but it's not authentic enough. And I think a lot, of the, a lot of my studies have revealed that most of these people we would call the great geniuses didn't have a need for substances. I mean, they might have imbibed in alcohol from time to time, but as far as um, psychoactive substances and the like, they didn't need it. It's a, everyone's capable of this connection. It simply takes the desire to go within. And I think that's uh, a lot of what's missing in today's approach to mind science is that we can get there without the use of substances. Again, substances are a physical domain. They're, they're using the physical to alter the senses to get to the core when simply the, the desire of going into the core doesn't require a substance. So it's not as hard to get to as, as it's made out to be. I feel where you're coming from with that notion, having personal experience with a variety of substances, I guess, but not particularly an abusive substance uh, relationship with any of them. I'd say they're certainly an interesting tool, but they're not the thing that gives one the experience of divine illumination. I want to ask you more about that uh, divine illumination, what that really means, and the way that it is expressed through the few individuals who have actually attained it, and maybe your own experiences with it. But... Back to the actual, you know, the substance issue, I think that it's possible to bring balance to certain unbalanced parts of your own personal frequency with medicinal plants, and they can symbolize the idea of balance. And you can attain that 
harmony in the self through accessing the symbol. But then later, at some point, if you continue on your journey towards, I guess, like stillness, uh, like we were talking about, you're going to realize that it was you who was actually creating the balance, not the substance. You just mentally and symbolically use that substance to tap into an ability that you innately had. That's well said. Yeah. I mean, certainly substances, psychoactive substances throughout time and memorial have served a purpose. Um, just with John Hopkins studies on post-traumatic stress syndrome and veterans, psilocybin cubensis has been found to be immensely beneficial to restoring a balanced state, you know, and that's, you know, again, these, these substances definitely have their, their import in, in so many ways, but there's a clear demarcation line between true illumination and a psychoactive experience. And speaking from experience, I've experienced both as well. I mean, I did, I searched for the divine using substances uh, for, well, several times I would say, but it was always a scientific approach. 90% of the time, it wasn't just to get, you know, in some kind of party atmosphere with lots of people everywhere. And that might've happened in my teenage years, but for the most part in my later years, when I actually began to do, to desire to know what this universe is, I thought that substances might be the approach to help. It did help to a degree, but it could only go so far. Again, substance cannot define the immaterial. It can give you a different perspective using the senses to try to do it. But there's really a lack of, of the kind of direct experience of the light itself. What do you think about the inner imaginary realms that can be tapped into through these experiences? Do you think there's a demarcation there between the external experience of physical pleasure that's sought after by the party culture, you know, for the purpose of getting loose and freaky with a bunch of friends versus that shamanic, meditative, internal journey work? done scientifically and mindfully with the substances. The, the demarcation line is the fact that it's still sensory. It's still electric activity in the brain. And the illumination experience was never truly defined in an accurate way until Walter Russell came along. And he actually defined it in an extremely long section of words devoted to defining that experience, which he said it was a and I can attest to this, and, and through my study of illumination and many different mystics, I can see the pattern, the same exact pattern emerge. The words may vary, but the description of the experience is always the same. What you're seeing with um, psychoactive ingestation is, again, electrical activity in the brain, much like dreaming. And, and I'm not saying that that's bad in any way, shape, or form. It's just it's not on the same level. It's, it's again, it's in the horizontal realms. When you're dreaming, when you're doing out-of-body work, uh, shamanic work, technique, things like that, you're still in the motion. You're still in the motion universe of electrical interchange between hemispheres. Now, some of my most powerful insights and inspirations have come from sleep, but without dreaming. And I, I've, I can document on more than one hand, several times I came out of what I would say creator school or kind of just pure consciousness with a complete idea of music in my mind. It was not a dream, but I certainly had memory of the, you know, the idea in its complete form 
and immediately went out to the studio and began deconstructing it into tracks. And, you know, eight hours to 12 hours later, there stands a, a completed original song that was not on the planet henceforth prior. What you see with dreams, again, is an, is an electrical activity. Now, with divine illumination, it's literally, as, what, as Russell would define it, an electric short circuit between the hemispheres of the brain. The two lobes of the brain electrically short circuit. And another form of electrical short circuit circuiting is what we call an orgasm between male and female. You know, that, that short circuit results in, in the need to rest and, and basically a cessation from action. It's a voidance of tension. So the electrical tension that's set up by the two hemispheres of the brain is always interchanging as well as in dreaming until you get to that place they call deep sleep where the brain ceases its motion and you become wholly mind. So in a short circuit experience, often blindness is what accompanies that. And I've read also that there's been several mystics that have experienced blindness, at least temporarily, not permanent, but temporarily, because when the short circuit occurs, the light is so blinding that it actually affects the olfactory nerve in the eyes. Paul on the road to Damascus was one example. He was temporarily blind for a period of about three days, if I recall that story correctly. For Walter, the way he described it was that when this occurred to him, it was very hard for him to really understand what was going on because you, your body feels like a remote appendage. It's extremely far away and only your mind is only attached to it through what he called golden flux threads of light meaning that the mind itself is the master puppeteer and the body itself is the puppet. And literally, it was very difficult for him to come back to his body, but he was able to come back so that he could write down the words that were coming to him in this experience, which happened to be 39,000 words and several hundred charts and graphs of scientific knowledge, which he had no interest in science prior to this experience at the age of 49 in the year 1921. So for 39 days, he was severed from his body, but had to learn to come into the body just enough to be able to write down the words, to draw the graphs and drawings, and to you know be able to express that which he was wholly a part of at that moment. Very interesting, but what it's saying is that the light itself being undivided, non-electrical, still, silent, motionless, in other words, an equilibrium. The true experience of an equilibrium requires the total cessation of electric thinking between the hemispheres of the brain. I have read, I have, I have experienced, and I have talked with many people who have used substances, and none of them can describe this experience. None of them have ever described this experience. Terrence McKenna, I've read all his books. You know, it gets close, but it's not the cigar. It's wonderful insight for electric awareness, but it's limited to its scope and effect. And generally, when you, when you compare the two experiences, one may increase, you know, the psychoactive experience can certainly increase the artistic abilities of people. But as far as truly uh, being able to tap into knowledge and, and knowledge of, of such a vast amount that it's not even describable, being a single drop in the ocean to suddenly become the entire ocean and to know it for what it is, 
There's just, there's nothing that parallels the experience of illumination. And the ironic thing is of the 65 to 70 plus cases I've studied, 40 of those were from Richard Maurice Buck's work, Cosmic, Cosmic Consciousness. I've also talked by phone with people who have experienced a divine illumination. And there's many illuminations and there's, there's larger ones. But one lady had had an illumination for three weeks. And we talked about it on the phone. And she, too, had also experimented with substances and found the two to be quite a different experience. So I would say that, that there's definitely there's qualitative and quantitative evidence to show there's a difference between the experiences. Not to knock either one. I mean, both have certain qualities that one can come away with, but there's certainly a difference between the two in, in, in the sense of one being holy mind and the other belonging to the realm of body. Now, in my life, I think I may have actually experienced the onset of small illuminations before, maybe, uh, definitely in a non-substance way, at points in my life where I've had extremely healthy patterns, physically, emotionally, and mentally. In certain moments, there would come like a cessation of thought that would be caused by some sort of negating realization of something, an aha moment of sorts, that would balance an idea I used to hold on to and had been having tension in my mind through and sort of letting go of that idea. When this would happen, I would literally see the world get brighter and even start to fade into white light. And I can't even remember what the ideas were, you know, it'd be something like this world is a dream and you're going to wake up, something like that. And this has happened three or four times and it felt almost like beaming out of reality. But what would always halt the experience was that I would get scared at that point. And every time that it's happened before, I didn't even know about divine illumination and if that's even what it was. And usually what would cause the experiences to stop, though, was the fear that whatever was happening was going to take me away from the physical world permanently. And of course, I didn't want that. So it's very interesting to hear these reports and cases of people who actually do not just have an out-of-body experience, but an out-of-reality experience, I guess, or perhaps the experience of the true reality, unplugging from the matrix and returning to the still white light of source. That's got to be an extremely beneficial and supercharging experience. And I feel like it wouldn't be something that was accessible to the evolving human consciousness if it wasn't part of the intended path that our creator seems to have put there to help us know what it is that we know. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, even what they call an idea is represented by a light bulb over the top of the head. And that's light. Everybody gets ideas. So in a sense, we all, to a degree, can experience cosmic illumination. It's not so mystical that it's beyond reach. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. They think that, oh, because Nikola Tesla or Victor Schauberger or Walter Russell or Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo or uh, Mozart, all these different greats are just they're, they're at an untouchable level, but that's just simply not true. I mean, we all have ideas, and an idea is an inspiration. It comes from that light, because what you're bringing out is a concept into your mind. Now, the difference between the genius and the mediocre man is the genius will hold that thought and build a body for it. The mediocre man will simply let the thought go, and it becomes a relic of his past, never born. It's a stillborn idea. And thank goodness human bodies aren't always stillborn or there wouldn't be a human race. 
So in a sense, even sexual union is a form of inspiration because it, when that sperm meets the egg, life continues. And so another body comes to repeat the pattern of the parents mixed together as one. It's, it's really quite amazing. So often people think that this is an untouchable experience, but any degree of inspiration that you have is an experience of illumination. Now, you can have different levels of experience. Even near-death experiences are in themselves illuminations. Because what your consciousness is actually doing when it leaves the body and looks down, it's always looking down. I've never encountered a, a near-death experience that was looking up at the people. It was always looking down. So in a sense, that that's consciousness evacuating the body, um, moving away from the body upward. And that, that might be where we get this idea of going up to heaven. So space is literally the heaven that surrounds all planetary spheroids. And so the concentration of space creates the hot, dense matter we call spheres and bodies. So when your consciousness would leave your body, it would obviously go back into the zero curvature and zero cold of space, which is the cube. And coincidentally, a cube unfolded as the cross the cross folded up is the cube. And cube boundaries of zero curvature surround all hot motion bodies, including every single body that we call a cell, that we call a fish or a human or a tree. There's all cubic wave fields of stillness and zero curvature, which are project, projecting the divided mind light into that form body through cyclic rhythmic interchanges of sequential in-breathings and out-breathings. And so with the experience of the divine light, you're literally taking your physical body and crossing the threshold into the vertical awareness itself to become wholly vertical. So you're basically folding up that cross into a cube. The human body becomes from the sphere or, or transforms from the sphere into the cube. And at that point, you can see motion for what it is, a grand illusion. And those who can hold on to that experience are able to transfer that light into their daily lives. So to the degree of your illumination is to the degree that you can command matter itself and imbue it with your own divinity. And that's something that, that really is like, to me, the purpose of existing. It's to express the self to the maximum degree that you can. One of the things Walter said and other illuminates have said, which rings true is, when this experience is so great that you actually, you know, you physically leave your body, you do not wish to come back. And that, I think, is what scares people a lot. A lot of near-death experiences, they do not want to come back. And they only do because they hear a relative crying or, or mom, please come back to me. Don't leave me. So they, they, at this point, they're going up into the proverbial heaven, looking back at their loved ones, and then they encounter this divine light. They go into this light, and sometimes they're sent back, sometimes they come back for concern for a loved one who's in the room with their physical body. So there's a lot of interesting dynamics around this, but again, it's the experience itself is a, a whole mind experience, and anything can be brought out of it. I mean, the knowledge you know, it's knowledge without learning when you tap it. You're, take the example of a library. A library does not have knowledge in it. A library with 10 million books only has information. 
Knowledge is the ability to use information or vice versa to impart it or depart it. So it's an interesting dynamic. I think with the near-death experience, we're still seeing a type of electrical sensation and manifestation of the motion universe. Maybe there's a spectrum of the reality fractal that's beyond the visibility of what we experience normally, but it's part of the infinite thinking of the creator's knowing and not the white light itself because people have very psychedelic or shamanic accounts of their experiences in those near-death travels. And the science on it is actually quite solid and concrete and consistent in that there's so much research that's been done verifying the anecdotes of these people's experiences where they seem to gain knowledge that was impossible for them to have had, while at the same time, there's documented evidence that their brain was completely shut down, but their consciousness was still looking about the room and picking up information. So if that's the case, that implies that we have a kind of etheric body that has some type of physicality and sensory ability because that astral world is still movement in a way. And it's not the still white light. So this opens up a much wider reality of our creator's thinking. If there's light and motion beyond the physical manifestations that we see, some more energetic and etheric spectrums. But before we get close to the end of the show, I'd like to ask you about the University of Science and Philosophy, what your role there really is and the goals of the school and what the experience is like for students who want to learn about their inner genius. Well, it's a... Uh... Higher learning, uh, the science of man, as the founders called it, which Alexis Carroll wrote was the most needed science of today. We have no science to explain man's soul. You know, the import of the development of his character is Edwin Markham, the great poet, said, in vain we build a city if we do not first build the man. So when you, when you have a society of people that are autonomous and machine-like gears in industry, then you really remove the soul of man, which is the artist himself, the creator within man himself is, you know, lacking and at a deficit, which is really what we see in the world today. I, I truly believe they put their finger on the pulse of the reason why civilization is in decline. And this stems from the Twilight Club, which is an organization that was formed in the early 1870s by Herbert Spencer and other great poets, uh, Walt Whitman, Mark Twain was a member, uh, Edwin Markham, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Alexis Carroll, um, was partially helped and funded into being by Andrew Carnegie, who offered a house for them to meet. And Herbert Spencer was concerned that if man did not pay attention to the decline in his virtues and moral compass, then he would simply become a cog in the wheel of industry that spins without consciousness to create who knows what a machine, you know, an age of machine men with machine hearts and machine minds whose total philosophy is, is one of the worship of death, which is absolute materialism. Walter's wave of creation that he gave to humanity, he called, he said in the wave lies the secret of creation, meaning there's a life giving half to the wave of creation and a death half of the wave. So far, we only, with our senses, are able to perceive the death half. Our senses cannot perceive the in-winding, compressive, light-building life half of the wave. And so, therefore, our entire philosophy of materialism is based on the death half of nature's wave of creation, which fully explains why 
we pollute with our technologies, why our technologies pollute, why our, our current energy production methods pollute and are dangerous to the planet. They've been built on the senses alone. And so nature, you look into nature, and I was just on the, in front of the, the house yesterday, my nephew and I, we, we try to police the, the road to pick up trash every time he comes down once a month or so. I noticed immediately how nature never throws trash out the window. You know, leaves fall from trees, but it's not trash. There's something about nature that there's the total balance of life and death in the wave of nature. It is absolutely integrated, whereas man is disintegrated. You know, he's basically operating with half the knowledge he could operate with if he truly understood what is the curriculum that, that people like Walter Russell and even Nikola Tesla said of, of Walter's Universal One book that he should lock it in a sepulcher for a thousand years because mankind is not ready to even begin to understand what it is he's departing to the world with that knowledge. So what one could benefit from in the study of this, and this is difficult for a lot of people because those of a materialist mindset haven't really given birth to the mental or the mind qualities that are laying in wait in the vertical realm. Everything in the vertical is 90 degrees to the senses. Um, it's insensible or super sensible, I should say. It's beyond electricity. It, it, it dwells in equilibrium. And equilibrium cannot be experienced by the senses of man. It only crosses the horizontal in the very middle point. So the entire left and right spectrum of the polarity of the senses is inherently separate from that still middle point where the vertical crosses. That's correct. But it is, it is an effect of its cause. So it does have purpose to have senses. It's just what we've done by hyper-focusing on the senses to explain sensible. So basically, we're looking for matter to explain matter. That's why they're searching for the so-called God particle with the Large Hadron Collider. The very idea that a particle causes matter is, is almost laughable. in the fa Well, it is laughable in the face of cosmic truth. It's as if to say a piece of paint causes a painting or, or, or a note on a piano causes a song. They've completely removed cause, which is mind itself. And again, the Russells differentiate mind from thinking. Mind is that which is in equilibrium in the vertical realm of awareness, where thinking is the divided vertical, which one divides into two. So the center of the cross becomes the arms and legs and hemispheres of the body. That is the order in which it proceeds. So what science is doing with its materialism is trying to explain it, its divided polarity with other divided polarity. And it's, it's basically a contradiction. And so we get this disintegrated kind of inharmonious worship of the death wave, which creates things we call pollution. And the worst pollution on the planet, according to, to Leo Russell, was human relations pollution. And that's, again, because, you know, the senses are king in the land of the materialist. And he who has the biggest stick holds the most power. And it's always been that way. We have not yet transcended the animal-based consciousness of horizontal awareness into the vertical realms where genius awaits us. And that's really the, if there was a conspiracy on this planet, that's the number one, is to keep man down in his horizontal animal base awareness so that he has no idea of the vertical kingdom of heaven within him. 
And that's what it comes down to as the solution, what our university proposes, is that man's recognition of his divine light within is his saving grace. That is the part of us in ourselves that will provide us the solutions to deal with the problems that we see caused by the materialist philosophical paradigm currently in charge of our planet, its resources, governments, education, medicine, and people. That is absolutely in line with the mission I feel is most vital, the uplifting of the character of the individual. And what is the word character when you break it down? Care actor, someone who acts like they care, right? And as we've been saying, care is the wellspring. It's the heart of what brings this type of divine illumination we've been talking about. Ultimately, your heart and your care, that is also your source. The creator's thinking is an expression of the care and of the ecstasy that caring and expressing love does actually generate the infinite positive feedback loop. I'm just blown away by the depth of your knowledge on these topics, and I feel like I could keep you for another few hours easily, but we're out of time for now. We'll just have to pick this up where we left off sooner than later, I hope. I'm very grateful to have had this talk with you and to have captured your expression of the knowledge you've connected to within yourself on these subjects because I think for all of us, having that scaffolding of knowledge is what lets us climb to a higher perspective. Of course, I'd like to give you the floor here at the end to elaborate any closing thoughts you might want to leave with the listeners. Well, thanks, Chance. It's it's really a great pleasure and honor to join you. Uh, I look forward to the time I just found out today that you live just a couple hours away. So maybe our next discussion, we could do that face to face with video and, and really have a good one. But in closing, I'd just like to say that one more little bit of anecdotal evidence for the using vibration understanding is the reason light bulbs don't last as long as they did when they were originally created was because they switched from using carbon filaments to tungsten and tungsten is on the death half of the wave so it burns out faster and that's just one more example but anyways there's a lot of things people can look into at philosophy.org mattpresti.com hopefully uh, we'll get to speak again in the near future thanks again so much friends one of the best episodes of this interverse pod that we've ever had all thanks to the eloquence and intelligence of matt presti i always love a good romp through the philosophy of idealism and although i imagine most listeners to this show might not be staunch materialists the world certainly hasn't changed much on that mindset and the more of us who can make logical arguments on the side of wisdom the quicker we can evolve as a society and sure I get that many of us don't have the transcendental experiences, psychedelic background, or any other kind of fringe experiences that indicate the primarily mental nature of reality. But guys, the signs are there, you just have to be paying attention. I can give you a really good, simple example. So last night I was having dinner with my wife Haley, and at the end of the meal we both had a single hiccup at the exact same time. I thought that was odd, so I remarked, 
that I was curious how often we might have synchronized bodily events and functions and not know it. We laughed a lot about that, and she made me swear not to ask any more questions about bodily functions after I tossed out anal seepage. <laughs> the weird part of this story is that only 30 minutes later, while I was in the other room working on editing this show, we both sneezed loudly at the exact same time. Neither of us had any follow-up sneezes or sneezes before that either. It was just one and done at the same instant. If that's not strange, but an obvious indication that we're all just existing in our heads and we're all one, I don't know what is, but of course there will be some people out there who say, nah, that's just a coincidence. Luckily, I have plenty more personal memories of unfathomable synchronicity that would totally put that story to shame. I just can't think of them right now. <laughs> I'm sure you do too. But what's more interesting than my anecdotes about sneezing was the plus extension to this episode. I really hope you're on plus for this one because the extended convo with Matt was sublime. If you don't know about Interverse Plus, you are looking at the same type of subscription situation as some of the greatest podcasts out there like The Higher Side Chats or Mysterious Universe. As a Plus member, you'll get early access to episodes in your own private RSS feed. You'll have early access, or you'll have access, not early, but regular access to our monthly patron hangouts online. And greatest of all, your weekly episode is going to be double the length with an extended conversation that goes way deeper. With Matt, we had a ton more things to cover after the free show wrapped up, including the conceptualization of thought structure of the creator with an awesome chart, which you can find a link to in the episode notes, the fulcrum of equilibrium for manifesting the higher mind, becoming non-objective instead of subject-object diluted, the dynamics of self-development, The uh, we talked about why we are geared for original thought instead of groupthink, and transcending hedonism within festival culture and creating paths to truth there. That was one of my most favorite things to talk about. And the physics explanation of why raising your vibrations is more dangerous than lightning. That got really interesting, and I think that's a concept that is totally lost on most people. Also, the absurdity of what's really going on at the Large Hadron Collider came up, and plenty more. So if you want to hop onto Plus, now is a great time. For $5 a month, which is about a dollar per show, you're going to get the long version of this chat and a lot more perks than I can even describe here for subscribers. So that's the end of my pitch. I hope you didn't mind it. But I have to ask because it's the only way I get any, any energy back for what I put into the show since I refuse to put the same three corporate ads in every episode or stoop to the other ways that some podcasts scrape together money. Nah, that's not for me. I like the voluntary donations thing. It makes more sense, and if I don't get subscribers, then I simply know I need to step up my game as a host, which hopefully is happening. I'm sure trying. I think this episode was the most time I ever spent editing audio because I made some rookie mistakes in the recording. But it's all good. Good as new. And I'm happy with how 4.4 turned out. I think you liked it too. I really hope so. Don't forget, you can also subscribe to IP on all your favorite podcast platforms. And on iTunes, you can leave us a five-star review to boost our cred and help us find new audience members. The show is also on YouTube, DTube, BitChute, Steemit, Gab, Minds.com, and of course, the obnoxiously ubiquitous Facebook and Twitter. Oh yeah, and Instagram too. I'll throw that out there. 
So next time you're on social media, come by the Interverse page and give it a like or a follow or what have you. Maybe even share an episode with your followers or tell a friend about the podcast in person because that's always a way better method to expose someone to something cool. And finally, an enormous gigantic thank you is in order to Matt Presti for this conversation. Now that I know we're both Missourians and only about two hours away, I definitely plan to meet up and collaborate with Matt in the near future. He's been a huge inspiration in a very short time to me, and if you go check out his YouTube channel, you'll see why. Dozens and dozens of videos about philosophy and science and several albums of divinely inspired epic music will have, like you have been hearing in this outro here, will have you totally stoked. Maybe some of you will find yourself getting into your own inner genius by enrolling with the University of Science and Philosophy too. Go to mattpresti.com or philosophy.org to find out more about Matt and his work with the USP, and you'll find links to those sites and his YouTube channel in the episode notes. And that's all, my friends. Thank you for joining me on this podcast journey, and thank you for having the courage to look past the surface level of ideas and into the infinite wellspring of your own knowing. That sounded kind of cool. <laughs> As you go forth into the glory of your epic life, remember... The words of Walter Russell, these are great words right here. Mediocrity is self-inflicted and genius is self-bestowed. It's all about that self. Love y'all so much. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thank you.